37 years ago yesterday, to the day, President Ronald Reagan stood at a press conference and delivered one of his most iconic lines of all time. He looked across the lectern and he said, the nine most terrifying words of the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. (laughs) He wasn't wrong. And this morning I might suggest that the second most terrifying set of nine words in the English language is this, I'm a pastor and we're talking about money this morning. And you laugh because it's true, but uh, we are talking about this money this morning, the gospel and money as we continue this series, Not Your Own. You know, this summer I was reading a biography of Ronald Reagan, and one of the major themes of this biography was how much Reagan intensely desired peace. But so many around him misunderstood that, right? He pushed for expansed expending in defense budgets. He pushed for enlarging our nuclear arsenal. He, he was called a warmonger and quick-triggered and all kinds of things, but he wanted peace desperately. What he said is that military strength could actually bring peace without ever fighting a war. Some of you may remember his, his mantra was peace through strength. And it turns out he was exactly right and brought great peace through that strength. And I think like Reagan was misunderstood by many, there's a lot of Americans and maybe people throughout the entire world who also misunderstand Jesus when it comes to money. They would look at Reagan and say, man, if you care so much about peace, then why do you keep talking about military spending? And people would look at Jesus and say, on the one hand, it seems like you're saying you want my heart, but why do you care so much about my bank account? Like, why is it, Jesus, that you spoke more about money than you did heaven and hell combined? Just as a strong military presence could lead to peace, so looking inward at how we view and use money leads straight to our heart. And that's why Jesus talked about it, because it is a direct road to our heart to think about how we see and use money. So it's important at the outset you understand that as your pastor, if I care about you at all, I must speak on this issue. If a pastor fails to speak on the topic of money, he's implicitly telling his congregation that he cares more about their temporary approval than their eternal and spiritual health. Because Jesus speaks to this. If you're new with this, we're in the middle of a topical series. Usually we go chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible, but this this is week five of seven, a series titled Not Your Own. What we've been doing throughout this whole series is looking at the major cultural narrative of our day, that you must be true to yourself, look into your heart for your deepest desires and fulfill them, and that's where happiness and joy is found. But, of course, the Bible says quite the opposite of that. It actually says that your heart, my heart, all of our hearts have been corrupted and perverted by sin. So we should not look there. In fact, that's maybe the worst place that we could look to find our truth and find what meaning would look like. In in essence, you might say that the series, what we've tried to say week in, week out, is in all caps, do not be true to yourself, but be true to who God is and what he's called you to do. And so far, we've looked at how this impacts our identity, sexuality, marriages. Last week, Pastor Casey looked at how this impacts our work. 
Today is money, and then the next two weeks we'll look at uh, how this impacts our view of human dignity and then justice. We're excited for that. I want you to know at the beginning, a sermon on money is not selected because giving is down at Parkside and we need to kind of rattle the coffers and get things moving in the right direction again. That's, that's not how this works. We actually praise God for strong, regular, generous giving from God's people here. We're thankful for his work in our midst in that way. No, the reason that we're here is because the cultural teleprompters all around us are constantly telling us that our money is our own. And friends, it's so important that we recognize it simply isn't. It all belongs to God. And he's entrusted it to us for a season to make wise decisions with it, to invest in eternity. The Bible calls this idea stewardship. And we know from a very, very, very zoomed out level in all of these topics that one of the best things we do to get a good grip on them is to get an enormous view of God and a small view of ourselves. It's true on all things, and I think it's particularly true when it comes to money. And that's why we keep reading Isaiah 40 every single week to just establish this grand, sweeping, majestic view of God. And we know that every single kind of nudge in that direction will be fruitful in us establishing a right view of him and a right view of us as under him. So I hope as we keep reading that week in, week out, I hope at times you're even starting to have part of that chapter memorized and you're almost reading it with the person reading each week, knowing that that right view of God is critical. It's been said that the most important thing that comes to any person's mind is what they think about when they think of God. Isaiah 40 helps us to grow in that way. So as we talk about money in particular with a big view of God, a small view of ourselves this morning, I want to use an outline that uses four images for what money is and can do. We're going to say that money is a window, money is a scoreboard, money is an elevator, and money is an altar. A window, a scoreboard, an elevator, and an altar. Let's start with the first. Money is a window. Just as a window allows you to see from one area into another, so money allows you to see into your own heart. You imagine standing maybe in the front yard looking through a window into your living room. What do you see? Perhaps a couch or a rocking chair or a TV or any number of things. This first point of money as a window will sort of be looking into the window of your heart and then the next three points will indicate things that you might see in the living room of your heart. All right, so you're going to look in with the first, and then we'll kind of talk about things that you might see in there. Now, money as a window was a very clear part of the teaching of Jesus across many different locations and sermons that he actually would have preached. So in Luke 12, 34, I think we have it on the screen, you'll see him say this, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You want to know where your heart is? Look where your treasure is. It's a window that reveals where your heart is. Or you could look at a, a different verse, Matthew 6 and verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now notice, that's the exact same words, and it's not two accounts of the same sermon. Different sermons, different people, different times recording literally the exact same words of Jesus, saying this was a central part of his teaching to recognize, if you want to know where your heart is, look where your money's at. It's a window into your heart. And one of the things that that means then is that money itself isn't bad. 
Sometimes you've heard people say, perhaps, that money is the root of all evil, and that's simply not what the Bible says. You've heard that said, that someone misquoting 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, what the verse actually says is the love of money is the root of all evil. All right, so let's make sure we're clear on what the Bible does say and also clear on what it doesn't say. Maybe another way of saying that is to say that money is a good gift, but a terrible God. If you recognize it in that order, there's enjoyment and life to be had. And when you talk about money as a good gift, I think we naturally are inclined towards saying money is a good gift and that it allows us to enjoy things. Right? There are certain pleasures that come through money, and you know, money may not be everything, but it can buy me a boat, it can buy me a truck to pull it, it can buy me a Yeti iced down with some silver bullets. Maybe you've heard that country song. It, it can provide things. But there's another way that money's a good gift. It's a good gift in that it allows us to see into our own hearts. And it's important that we not neglect that aspect of the good gift of money. Right? It's easy to think on the enjoyment piece, but it's a gift because it actually helps you to know yourself if you'll slow down and look at it. I remember the first house that Emily and I owned. We uh, were there the first winter. And we were having issues that no matter how much we turned up the heat, the house wasn't getting warmer, but the energy bill kept going higher. And so higher bills and lower temperatures in the winter is a bad combination. So we're, we're going through trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And we can't figure this thing out. And so I called my father-in-law and he came over and he's helping me figure stuff out. And we end up crawling up in the attic and we look in the attic and the, um, the, the ductwork is laid out. And I was shocked to find this. I look, and there's one piece of ductwork here, and there's literally a three-foot gap until the next piece of ductwork. Yeah, it's like just absolutely astonishing. Like, what in the world is going on here? We're just paying to have a really warm attic in a really cold house. And so I, I called Emily up, and she came up, and we, we looked at it, and we're like, okay, this is bad news. And so we got it fixed up, and there was a whole, I mean, the, the insulation was just more or less non-existent. If you want to know how I nearly died in that attic, you can ask Emily after the service, but that's a different story for a different day. Nevertheless, here, here's the point. We experienced, there's a little bit of frustration going on here, and had we not gotten up in the attic and looked at the ductwork, we would not have been able to figure out what was going on and figure out a solution to it. The thing is, when you get up and you start looking in the attic, some people hate the attic. I don't like the attic. My guess is most people don't say, boy, I just hope I get to do that on Saturday afternoon. And maybe you feel similarly about money. Like, boy, that conversation seems a little scary. Like, we're going to fight about it. Can't we just go do something else we're not going to fight about here? But it's really important to get up in the attic and see what's wrong with the ductwork. How can we fix it up? And you don't know what you're going to find, right? Because the second house we bought, we're going through the showing. And, of course, what am I doing on that showing? Straight up to the attic, check that sucker out because they're paying to fix it, not me getting up there fixing it this time. And, uh, and the ductwork was pristine, looked great, and we didn't have any issues, praise the Lord. So the point is you don't know what you're going to find, but it's really important to look. And so when we think about money, there's a key evaluation question that you need to ask, and it's simply this. What does this reveal about my heart? There's all sorts of things we talk about when it comes to money, how we're spending, how we're saving, how we're giving, upcoming expenses, what our income is, investments, all sorts of that. But when we talk about it, it's critical that we have a time to say, what does this reveal about my heart? 
And if you're married, it's really important that you have this conversation with your spouse. Right? Sometimes we, we delegate different areas in maintaining a home. Okay, this is your area, you run with that. This is your area, you run with that. And some of you are going to be more gifted than others in managing financial matters in your home. That's a good gift God has given you. We're thankful for that. But it's important that you come together and at least at a high level have a conversation and start to think through how does our use and view of money reveal something about our hearts? I know for Emily and I, what was uh, both challenging and helpful was for us to have a conversation, and we just kind of said it like this, what is easy for me to spend on and what's challenging for me to spend on? And what's easy for me to give towards and what's difficult for me to give towards? Now, that's not like a full-on CPA audit of our budget where we're checking every penny every month, but just a simple, high-level conversation where I'm saying, okay, I see what's easy for me to spend on. I see what's hard for me to spend on. I see what's easy for me to give to. I see what's difficult for me to give to. And it is a little uncomfortable to try to identify what's in my heart there. Like, I'm not pretending that was an easy conversation for us, or it continues to be, but it's an important one. So I want to encourage you to have that conversation together. Certainly, you could go deeper on that, but that's at a high level what I think is really important to do. And so what happens then is when you embrace money as a window, you start to look into your heart, there's a variety of good things and bad things that you're going to see. And so these next three points start to describe different things that you might see in your heart. And my guess is for all of us, you're going to see a degree of all three of them. But it's important to slow down, see what's there, kind of analyze the situation, and then develop a game plan. Let's move into the second one, then something you might see in your heart, and that's this. Money is a scoreboard. Money is a scoreboard. This is not necessarily a good or biblical way of seeing things, but it's very common in all human hearts, whether someone is a Christian or not. A friend of mine was, was dating a girl, and he had the opportunity to go meet her father, and potential father-in-law has kind of given him the rundown questions, you know, what do you plan to do with your wife, son, this and that, and uh, trying to make sure you, know, you provide a, a good living for his, his baby girl. And he said, look, here's the deal to this young man. Money's not everything. He goes, it's just kind of how we keep score in life. Maybe you've thought about it that way. Rarely we say it out loud that way. But deep in our hearts, that is kind of there in one way or another. Think about the the houses that we live in, the cars that we drive, what the retirement account looks like, all sorts of things. And there's different comparisons we're doing, right? When you say scoreboard, on, a, and on the one hand, it seems like you're comparing against the other team, right? You're comparing yourself against others. And that's certainly a way that money can act as a scoreboard in our hearts. But there's also a whole set of comparisons against ourselves, where it might work more like a, a, a putt-putt golf scorecard where you're comparing it against yourself. Boy, I feel like I should be further along here. I think I'm really killing it right now. Or, you know, it's not always against others that we're making that comparison using that scoreboard. And so we have to recognize within ourselves, do I look at it as a scoreboard towards others or just towards myself or maybe both? Now, I said this wasn't a particularly good or biblical view, but there are, it is a fact of life that in some scenarios, many, money does serve as a scoreboard. Like in certain business contexts, or whether it relates to your job performance, there are some parts where it's going to be on your, your sheet of metrics that says, man, is, is our company being successful and is my job secure? 
Right? So I'm not saying that's sinful for your company to do that, for your job to have that sort of thing in it. But here, very carefully, here's what I do intend to say. When money becomes a scoreboard in your heart, you're sitting on 99% blockage of your carotid artery. You're in grave danger. Jesus in Luke 12 said that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And the reason Jesus have to say, has to say that is because we're tempted to think it does. Right? So that's the whole point of making a statement. You think you're going to be prone in that direction? Jesus says, no, that's not what your life consists of. Jesus would go on and say, yeah, you know what? In addition to that, money is deceitful. It's telling you lies. It tells you lies about what is success and where you find security. Two things that money lies to us about. So in Mark 4, 19, Jesus would say that the deceitfulness of riches chokes out your spiritual vitality. It blocks your arteries up with plaque. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, we talked about that a moment ago. Jesus says those who love money are literally piercing themselves with many pangs. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 11. This is one of my favorites. Look at this on the screen. The wealth of the rich is his fortified city. Feels so strong because of it. Secure, successful. In his imagination, it's like a high wall. That vivid imagery kind of leads in like, yeah, the wealth that I've worked for and saved up does feel like my fortified city. I've been successful and I'm secure because of it. <laughs> in the the author of Scripture comes back and says, yes, in your imagination, it's a big dream and it seems very much like a high wall. In essence, God is saying, your delusions in this area are real. And friends, you got to understand, when Jesus speaks about money, he's not messing around. He cares enough about our delusions in this area to wake us up from them. And at times that's difficult Luke chapter 12 records a story where Jesus looks down at a, at a rich man and says, fool, you've laid up and laid up and laid up and laid up, built more barns, more barns, more barns. This very night your life will be required of you and then what's going to happen to all your stuff? Or you could look in the Old Testament and see a similar thing as God's people lay up more and more and more. The prophet Amos records the words of the Lord. He says, I will demolish the winter house and the summer house. The houses inlaid with ivory will be destroyed, and the great houses will come to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. It's as if God is saying, wake up! Life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. Your arteries are blocked. Pay attention! And lest we think that this is reserved for somebody else who has a bigger house or a second house or a nicer car or makes more money, we have to recognize that this money as a scoreboard view is not restricted to wealth. It's an everybody problem. We can all see it that way. And you can have not very much money at all and still see it as a scoreboard and seek and idolize success and security in the money you don't have. Proverbs chapter 30 Verses 8 and 9, here's what we read. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. So you see, money can serve as a scoreboard where we wrongly seek 
the feelings of success and the feelings of security, whether we have a lot or a little, it comes at all of us. So, so, so maybe you're listening and you say, Justin, I hadn't quite thought of it that way, but in some ways, as I reflect on it, I do kind of see money as a scoreboard in my heart. Maybe I do have some more blockage in my arteries than I recognized. What does it look like to get a spiritual stent put in? How do I do that? And I think it's important that you recognize the root issue that we're talking about underneath here is that you're locating your feelings of success and security in yourself. Now, specifically, it's money, but more fundamentally, it's in yourself. So on the one hand, giving more away might be helpful, and I'll suggest that's a good thing to do, but you've got to be careful because you can just as quickly root your security and your success in the amount that you've given, and it stays all about you. Right? That's a very significant idol that we have to look out for. A good gift of giving becomes an ultimate thing where I find my security and success still back in me. So the better thing to do is to transfer your security and your success to your relationship with Christ rather than what you've done either in earning or giving money. That's at the, at the root issue there. And so what I'm going to encourage you to do is add two very simple prayers to your life this week to help reorient your heart. These two prayers to drive the gospel deeper into your heart. Simply say this. Number one, God, you are all I need for everlasting joy. There is more success in knowing you, more joy in knowing you than anywhere else. I'm rooting that success outside myself rather than in myself. And then secondly, I encourage you to pray. God, there's nothing I can do to make you love me any more or any less. That's finding my security in Christ. So in both of those root issues that clamor for our heart, I'm saying I'm moving the grounding of my identity from what I've earned or what I've given to Christ and what he's done on the cross. Critical to get into our hearts and recognize what's going on inside my heart. What's this reveal about my heart when money is a scoreboard? And then it takes steps towards reorienting myself to go deeper into the gospel and how I view myself and how I view money. That brings to our third point. Money is an elevator. Money is an elevator. This is moving towards a, a better view of money. Money's not merely a scoreboard, but it's a tool. What does an elevator do? It, it takes you up somewhere higher that you couldn't have gone on your own, or it would have taken you a lot longer to get there. So we say that money itself isn't the thing, but it takes you to something better. That's kind of how, how an elevator functions, right? This is a good impulse. This uh, past summer, I was reading Phil Knight's biography, and he's a, not a Christian, but a businessman. Uh, he founded Nike and has certainly a lot of money because of that. Uh, and here's how he described his view uh, on this, and I think you'll see the, the truth of it. Here's what he wrote. For some, I realize business is the all-out pursuit of profits, period, full stop. But for us, business was no more about making money than being human is about making blood. More than simply alive, you're helping others to truly live. And if that's business, all right, call me a businessman. You, you see what he's saying in that, right? It's not the ultimate thing, but it helps me go somewhere else I wanted to go. It's good impulse there. 
It's actually a, a biblical impulse, whether Phil or any of us recognize it or not. It's the idea of stewardship. It's good to recognize that charitable use of our time, our talent, and our treasure is what God calls us to. Of course, you don't need to look at just at Phil Knight and what Nike says about these things. You could look right back to the scriptures, probably it's a better solution. So how about Acts chapter 20, verse 35, this is Paul preaching. He says, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Working hard, remember we can help the weak, remember what Jesus has said. There's something better than getting more. Or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul writes, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. That Ephesians 4 passage is an interesting one. It says there's a couple ways to look at money and things. You can steal in order to get, shouldn't do that, or you can work in order to get, that's a better option. But what Ephesians 4 actually says is the best is say, I want to work so that I can give. Right, saying this is opening up opportunities for money to serve as an elevator. And so when you see this impulse in your heart, recognize you should be glad. This is a wise and biblical impulse. Because that impulse is recognizing the limits of money and what it can do for you and the needs of others that perhaps God has prospered you so that you may meet those needs. You recognize that God's gift of the stability of money in your life allows you to give more of your money or more of your time or more of your talent to opportunities where there's need. So maybe that's through a food bank or perhaps a a rehab program in the area or meeting the needs of refugees that are placed in Indianapolis. But in all of these, it's important for us to consider how do I meet both the physical needs and the spiritual needs, because those go hand in hand, and God's called us to meet both of them. You might see this, money's an elevator in the physical and the spiritual, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, here's what we read. It says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, that, that last phrase I love, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, this week I was kind of praying over this, thinking of it, and whether I just like football or God directed me to football as a conversation for lunch perhaps, but I did think of the NFL and the preseason games starting this week. And one of the things you know about the preseason in the NFL is that the star players don't play very much, if at all. Right? That, that's, that's not their, their focus, because they know the preseason doesn't define them. Right? Peyton Manning was not concerned with preseason wins and losses. He was concerned with Super Bowl wins and losses. Right? It would be silly for Peyton to say, boy, did you see how I lit up the third stringers in that preseason game? Did you see how we were undefeated this preseason? You wouldn't hear him say that. To use the words of 1 Timothy 6, he's saying, I'm going to take hold of that which truly matters. Winning the Super Bowl, he would say. But for us with our money, it means we're not so focused on this life as the preseason, 
but on the eternal life that God has promised for Timothy 6, you're take hold, taking hold of that which is truly life. Now, to recognize that means, here's what it means, you know that God doesn't prosper you in your job or your business for the sake of bigger homes and better cars. No, God prospers you in your job, in your business, so that you can know that over 40% of the world's population today does not have a Christian or a church near them, and you can help take the gospel to them. Don't, don't glance over that statistic I just gave you. Four out of ten human beings on planet Earth today do not have a Christian or a church near enough to them that they can hear the gospel proclaimed. To take hold of that which is truly life means you recognize that the water of life is free, but the pipes that take it to people, those cost money. And so together we invest in taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations. So whatever it is that God has given you, we ask, how do I leverage it for eternity? How do I leverage God's treasure, his time, the talents he's given to me so that I can lay water pipes for the sake of the gospel. What does that look like? And we recognize this isn't just a suggestion, a possible good thing to do. This is a biblical command. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, could not have been more explicit and clear. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but rather do lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That, that do not, but rather do this is not the optional language, if you find time, go for it kind of language. So how should we think about practically putting this into play? Let me suggest a couple of quick steps here, things that are wise to think about of how we steward what God has given us for the sake of the gospel, that we may take hold of that which is truly life, 1 Timothy 6, 19. Step one, recognize that the heart of giving is more significant than the amount of giving. You have to start there. The heart of giving is far more significant than the amount of giving. Mark 12, Jesus talks about the Pharisees who gave much, and he's not impressed. Because although the amount was big, the heart was stingy and self-righteous. We recognize at the outset that you can be righteous with great wealth and righteous with no wealth. And you can be unrighteous with great wealth and unrighteous with no wealth. So you're going to prayerfully ask for a joyful, generous heart as you give. Recognize the heart of giving is more significant than the amount of giving. Step two, give of your first fruits. The concept of giving first fruits is all over the Bible, one passage to jot down, Proverbs 3, 9, we simply read, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. So rather than waiting to the end of the month and see what's left over and hoping we can give somewhere, we give God our leftovers, we're going to give at the outset. A practical thing here, if you've not set up a recurring giving to hold your feet to the fire, that's a great way to walk in obedience. A little scary. You're not sure if there's going to be enough at the end of the month, but we give of our first fruits. I, I was looking at a, a, a guy on Twitter the other day who was talking about ways to um, expand your investment portfolio, and he said, I'm, I'm just going to use a simple term. He says this, pay yourself first. 
He said, take the first 20% of your income and invest it in the stock market. That way you make sure you are always getting that investment in and you're going to have a great future because of it. So the point is this, the things that matter the most, we recognize I'm going to do that first. And if we recognize it's all God's money and trusted us for good stewardship, then we're going to seek to give of our first fruits. Third, prioritize the local church. Prioritize the local church. We recognize that God's chosen and designed instrument to take the gospel to the nations is the local church. It's good to give to other ministries besides the local church, but I encourage you to do that. A whole host of good opportunities. But we recognize local church is the priority here. And it's important for you to know that as we think about our church missions budget— which is about 20% of every dollar that ever comes in is going straight back out to missions, we are similarly prioritizing the local church through Plant Indy, the banner in the back, so that more churches can be planted in Indianapolis in areas of need. And so that as missionaries are being sent out, we are emphasizing and prioritizing ministries that plant and revitalize and establish healthy churches around the globe. So this is an everybody kind of thing. We recognize the centrality the local church. Fourth, plan for extra generosity. So you give first fruits, but also plan for extra generosity. It's a good thing to do. God calls us to be generous givers and cheerful givers. Second Corinthians 9, 6, those who sow generously will reap generously. Very next verse, Second Corinthians 9, 7, we know that God loves a cheerful giver. The fact of the matter is this, guys. For many Americans, giving 10% is simply not very generous giving. God has blessed us with abundant wealth in this nation. And it's a little uncomfortable to think about me saying that from the pulpit for you, maybe. But for many Americans, giving at 10% is just not being that generous. Now, 10% is that kind of Old Testament tithe thing that gets talked about. I don't believe the tithe is still binding on us today. I simply say this, 10% is a good starting point. And ask God, God, how can you make me more generous? So I've got a, a starting point where I'm going to plan to give my first fruits in this way. And then I'm going to seek ways I can plan to be extra generous. Some of you love to be spontaneous in your giving. But if you haven't planned to be extra generous... There's that joy in spontaneous giving that's really hard to do if you don't have anything to give. A real simple level, one of my, one of my mentors would carry around uh, money, cash in his pocket, that was just specified in his mind towards seeing somebody that looked like they could use some help. I'm just going to plan to be generous. I'm always going to have $5, 10 50 100 whatever. It's a, a simple way there, and certainly it expands beyond that. You think, hey, we're going to have three special offerings a year at Parkside, so we can plan for extra generosity along the way, and we're just going to keep tucking a little bit aside because we want to plan to be as generous as we can, knowing that God has called us to sow and reap generously, and he loves a cheerful giver. Step five, involve your children if you have them. Involve your children in your giving if you have them. We understand that the way we steward the money that God has given to us is a normal part of Christian discipleship. The way you use your time, the way you use your talent, the way you use your treasure— all of that is normal Christian discipleship. And we know that more is caught than taught. So if you have kids, involve them in giving as much as you can. 
Sometimes the online giving thing can be tough with that. And so it might be beneficial to put some cash together, or some coins or a check. Let the kids drop it in the offering box in the back to talk about it with them as they start to get old enough to make money. Help them develop rhythms of giving. It's wise discipleship of your children to involve them as early as you can and as they grow older. Sixth and finally, I would suggest this, seek wise, godly counsel. I just said it's true that giving is a normal part of Christian discipleship. Then it would be normal in all aspects of our Christian discipleship that we would pray together that we would grow in this area. That we would confess sin to one another where it's difficult in this area. That we would discuss strategies together of what's been effective and ineffective in this area. Certainly there's challenges of don't let your right hand know what your left is doing. We don't want to be flaunting how much we do or don't give in a way that would encourage or discourage others. Like you got to be wise in this, just like you would be wise in what you share in any other area of Christian discipleship. But don't divorce your giving from biblical community. Now, all of this has been money as an elevator, money as a tool. I said it's a good and a biblical view. But hear me clearly as I, I wrap this one up. Regular God-honoring gifts to godly ministries can be used by Satan to deceive you. Because regular giving can be your way of proving to yourself and to others that you're a good person. It can become your way of earning salvation or feeling like God loves you more because you've continued to do this. So if you stop at point three, you have at very best a deficient view of biblical giving, what money is, and you might even go so far as to have a deadly view. So point four is critical that we get to. Here's what it is. Money is an altar. Money's an altar. Now, altar is a biblical image for worship. What we're saying is money always leads us to worship something. Money's bringing us down this road, and the road is going to fork, and you're going to take one of the two forks. What are you going to worship with your money is the question. With God's money might be a more appropriate way of saying that. Or like the famous theologian Yogi Berra would say, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. It's a joke. You can laugh at that. It's all right. I know we're talking about money. You're going to go one way or the other, right? You're going to worship in one form or fashion. Matthew 6, 24, look back to the words of Jesus. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The road is going to fork. One is going to press the other down and be elevated above it, or the other will be elevated and press the other down. Or you could look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now check what that says very carefully. See the logic of that verse. Keep your life free from the love of money, be content with what you have, because he will be with you and he's better than any amount where your money grows or any amount where it shrinks. He's with you and that's better. You're either going to see money is the thing I worship and it's where I find my security and success or I have something better and I cling to the presence of Christ. So you might think of it this way. Your heart 
It's always going to be going in a certain direction. It's always worshiping something. It's like a hose that can never be turned off. It's always flowing. You're always watering a plant. You're always filling up a bucket. The question is, what bucket are you going to be filling up? You can't turn that off. It's flowing in a direction. There is no neutral here. We're always going towards God or away from God in how we view and use our money. We recognize that all Christian worship starts with God and what he's done for us. That might be a good thing to write down if you're taking notes. All Christian worship starts with God and what he's done for us. We know that the Bible is more about God and what he's done for us than it is about us and what we're supposed to do for him. So for us to worship rightly with our money is to start with God and what he's done for us and allow our worship to flow out of that. This means that gospel-centered giving means that both the model and the motivation for my giving flows out of Jesus' work on the cross. Model and motivation. So, so you might begin to pray, Lord, I want to give to your kingdom, even though that's not my desire. So you're going to look to Luke 22, where Jesus is in the garden and prays, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Well, you think money's a hard conversation? I get that. I've had some tough ones. Try to figure out. We can't have this conversation. You don't know how the sparks fly in my house when we bring that up. Yet Jesus was sweating drops of blood. So intense going, saying, not my will, but thine be done. And so you look to him as both the model and the motivation to even get started, that your worship may flow out of what he did for you. Oh, my giving to be with his attitude as well. Hebrews 12, 2, we looked at Jesus, said, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It seemed like there was something better to do than to go to the cross. But he looked ahead and said, there's something better. There's joy set before me. He said, well, there's all these other things we could do with our money. Yes, but see the joy set before you, Hebrews 12, too, just like Jesus did. He's the model and the motivation for how you think about your attitude in giving. And you want his generosity to shape your generosity. So you're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8. It says, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Say, Jesus, I'm so thankful you weren't stingy with your blood. You didn't withhold it from me. You gave every single drop so I could have all of your spiritual riches. I see the model and the motivation to be rich in giving in ways I didn't think I could because I've received wealth from him that I previously thought impossible. So when you fix your eyes clearly on Christ and think about what it means to wrestle with my desires and my will like he did and to look ahead to what's better like he did and to recognize that by his power I can be generous like he was, that the act of worship, the act of giving rather, ceases to be about me and what I've done for God, but about him and what he's done for me and how it simply flows out of that. It's an altar where I lay down my life in following him. Friends, let me, let me wrap up here where I started. We're talking about money as a window. Sometimes you look into your heart and you like what you see. And sometimes you look in and you don't like what you saw. Odds are you saw a little bit of both in your heart this morning. So I'm going to encourage you right now. Imagine a window where you're looking into your heart. And pause there for a second. 
And consider what the Lord has shown you this morning. If you've looked in, you said, boy, there are areas of joyful obedience where it is a joy to give, and I'm thankful that I get to. I just want you to pause when we have quiet here and give thanks for that, that God has pried your hands off of money as the source of security and success, because that is not natural at all for any of us. That's only a work of His Spirit in your life. And I want you to ask God to guard your heart against pride and self-righteousness that Satan may attack you with and try to creep in there. That's how I want you to think about that. And if you look in and you see shame over your failure in this particular area, the very first thing I want you to do is just confess that sin to God. Ask him to transform your heart. Help him to see you that he didn't, help him, help you to see in him he didn't withhold his blood for you. He didn't shrink back knowing that you would not walk in obedience here. He shed his blood to cover all of your sin and all of your shame. Yes, all of it, strong as it may feel. And his loving arms are open. He promises to receive you, to forgive you, and to make you whole. Will you come to the Father whose arms are open wide? And then there's others here that maybe you've just avoided looking through the window altogether. That's just, leave that aside. Let's focus on other things. I want you to encourage you to look to Jesus as well. Because his coming to earth was far scarier than you looking into your heart to see what it shows you about your money. He looked down knowing all of the ways that you and I would reject him and turn away from him and disregard his sacrifice. All the ways he would be beaten and tortured and killed. He said, I'm still going to come because I love you. See him coming to you and let that fuel you to come to him even when it feels like you can't. We must let Jesus work on the cross be the model and the motivation for all that we do, including discipleship and our finances. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you grateful that you would generously give the gift of your son. And Jesus, we celebrate your work on the cross that you would come and so generously spill your blood on our account so that we who were spiritually impoverished might have inexhaustible wealth in your name. Lord, we ask that your grace would break into our hearts. You would give us joy in giving. You would give us generosity in giving. But more than either of those, you would give us a greater love for you that we see the astonishing generosity you show to us. And it would blow our minds. And we would delight in your finished work on the cross in ways that we simply hadn't before. Oh, Jesus, we ask that you would make us more like you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.